Hi, creeps and freaks. Creepies and freakies. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And we are in the nick of crime. We come to you weekly with true crime, some spook spooks, and a little bit of comedy. We focus on being a voice for victims. But we also like to rake the offenders through the coals. We can never really seem to take ourselves too seriously, but we do hope you'll join us. So keep it creepy and stay freaky. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye! Welcome to the True Crime B&B. This is episode 54. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. Today, I am the good guy, so I'm going second, and Bailey will be delivering the heavy blows mm-hmm. with her bad story. I don't really have a whole lot of backstory on him, but the person I'm going to talk about today is named David Vernon Lovely. He was born August 5th, 1965. He grew up originally in Massachusetts, but as a teenager, he and his family moved out to California, so all the way across the country. Okay. And in the summer of 1985, when he was 19 years old, David's family planned to move back to their home state of Massachusetts. So in order to do that, they were going to rent a U-Haul, pack all of their stuff, and then do a family road trip all across the country. Mm-hmm. What the plan was was David's mother, Jackie, and his 18-year-old sister, Allison, would be driving the U-Haul, and he would follow behind them the whole way on his Yamaha motorcycle, because he wanted to bring that with him to move. And there wasn't room in the U-Haul. Apparently not. Yeah. His mother, Jackie, planned to, every 30 miles or so, they would pull in to a rest stop or a gas station, and she would check in on him, which sounds kind of excessive, but I guess... Knowing that U-Hauls and those RVs and stuff like that have a lower gas mileage. Yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense. And she also, this is his first time, he's 19 years old, ever driving across the country technically on his own. So. Okay. I mean, 30 miles is pretty excessive, though. Yeah. Especially if he's, like, right behind him. If if something's wrong with him, he can probably just wave you down and be like, yo, mom, we gotta go pull over. But that was what they told everybody. Yeah. On August 5th, I don't know what day into travel they are. Sounds like either day one or day two. They finally arrived to Evanston, Wyoming, which is right across the border from Utah. So it sounds like they got into Wyoming and they decided this was 11 hours from their place of start, which was Huntington Beach, California, to Wyoming. And the mother and sister decided at this point that they would like to stop there for the night and just get a hotel and continue on the next morning. Right, okay. However, David, on his motorcycle, didn't want to stop just yet. He kind of said to them, look, I have a little more energy in me. I want to keep going a little bit further. I'll meet up with you back east next day or two. However, since it's 1987 when this is happening, they didn't have any cell phones. And so the mom said, I really wish you would just stay with us. I'd feel better about it. But if you insist, we're going to use my sister back in California. She has her landline at home as the middleman. So you, when you get to your next stop where you're going to stay the night, call her, let her know where you are, and then I'll do the same thing, and then she'll tell us, vice versa, where the other person is in the journey. Okay. And so they agreed on that, and he just continued further east into Wyoming. Except, how are they ever supposed to meet back up again if he's going to get up the next day and keep going? I'll kind of talk about that a little bit. Okay. 
Later that evening, the aunt back in California got a call from Dave saying that his motorcycle had broken down a little bit further east. Of course it did. Yeah. Of course it did. And so he ended up having to push it three miles on the highway, like the side of the highway, and finally made it to a truck stop. Now we understand why mom was stopping every 30 miles. Typical 19-year-old boy, right? Well, because maybe (laughs) she knew it was old or it hadn't been maintained properly, or maybe she knew that it was not a super reliable vehicle. That's true. And mom has more life experience. She knows things don't always go to plan on these big, long-ass road trips. Usually they do not. Correct. He calls his aunt and he explains, okay, yeah, I had to walk three miles. Mom was right. (laughs) And I finally made it to this truck stop in Fort Bridger, Wyoming, which is 32 miles east of Evanston, where his mom and sister were staying the night. Okay. So he didn't make it very far, only about half an hour up the road. Right. He ended up at this truck stop meeting a fellow motorcyclist who actually worked on cars and motorcycles. And so this motorist had offered help to him and said, let me look at it. I'll fix up your bike for you and you'll be off by the end of the evening. At this point, when David is on the phone with his aunt, he says, that's already happened. The mechanic fixed it up for me. He was kind of scary looking, but he was nice, and he ended up helping me out. And a lot of people took a lot of that to heart. Oh, he was scary. I was intimidated by him at first, and then people just ran with that, because this is going to be the last time he calls anybody. But I think that if you're by yourself on a road trip and a buff guy on a motorcycle comes up to you, I think most people would be a little bit intimidated. However, knowing a lot of motorcycle people, they're the nicest people ever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and and, you know, we we used to know a lot of motorcycle Mm -hmm. people in Ohio and, but a lot of them are heavy set. Yeah. You know, they look burly. They look a little bit rough around the edges. But they got hearts of gold 99% of mm-hmm. the time, so... And every person on a Harley is not necessarily in Sons of Anarchy. Like, I can't... You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I would say the vast majority of them are just are regular, <laughs> down-to-earth people who like to get out and yeah. drive around the countryside on the weekend. Just because he said that, I think people read into that situation a lot more than what it is. I think he was just like, but he was actually really nice. And that's the only reason he said that. It was just a joke, you know? Yeah. Before hanging up with his aunt, he told her that he was going to continue on to Rock Springs, which is one hour further east, and that's where he was planning to hole up for the night and wait for his mom and sister the next day to get there. And so the aunt, once he hangs up the phone with her, calls his mother and says, okay, this happened, not a big deal, crisis averted, he's got his bike back up and running, he's going to stop in Rock Springs and meet you there tomorrow, so when you head out in the morning, just go ahead, stop at this stop in Rock Springs, and he'll be there. Okay, so, so that's he how wasn't going to call her again when he got to Rock Springs. Well, he said he would, Okay, but he said, I'll check in once I get there, but he never did, and so she just kind of passed that along to the mom, and they kind of all together said, Dave, fucking call us, damn it. They just figured he forgot, you know? It's been a long day. He had to walk the bike three miles. He probably got to a hotel and crashed, you know? Yeah. The next day... Jackie and Allison arrived in Rock Springs, where he told them that he would be waiting for them. They just stayed there all day looking for any sign of Dave or his maroon motorcycle. They went around asking at all the truck stops and gas stations, did this guy come in, come through? Did anybody talk to him? Is there any chance? And nobody had seen this guy at all. So was Dave a big guy? Was he a small guy? Was he tall, short? He was pretty, he was maybe 6'1". I think he so said 6'1 or 6'2, and he was pretty skinny, but he wasn't a small guy. Right. So he's not going to be just snatched by someone. Probably not. And thrown into a van. No. 
without making a ruckus. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I mean, he's 19 years old. He just looks like a 19-year-old guy, you know? But he's not... Yeah, but look at 19-year-old guys now. Mm-hmm. As an adult, you look at a 19-year-old, and when you're 19, you think you're you're huge, you're yeah. bulletproof. But when you're my age and you look at 19, it's like, oh, my God, he was a baby. But anyway, so they weren't really too concerned. Again, they were just passing it off as, he must not have stopped here, like he said. We don't really know what's going on. But just in case, they decided to stay there for the night. So they wasted the whole day of travel just waiting at this location for him. And he never ended up showing up. Without any other option, after waiting there a whole day, they were probably slightly annoyed with him, thinking he just threw all hell to the wind and just kept going like an irresponsible 19-year-old might do. And just wasn't checking in with anybody. I don't know. I think at that point I would be pretty, pretty frightened. Yeah, I mean, I think they were, but it was more, he's just excited to get back to Massachusetts. All of his childhood friends are there. He still has his best friend back in Massachusetts. He's just so excited to get home. He's not realizing that he's giving us a fucking panic attack right now. I don't know. I think he's, at 19, you're old enough to know that your mom is going to have a panic attack if you disappear on a cross-country driving trip. You know, you've got a system set up so that you can stay in some sort of contact with each other, and you just stop doing it, your mom is going to panic, and he's not stupid. He he knows. He would know that, so I think... I don't know. As the 19-year-old, not recently, but, like, I have been that person driving across the country. How many times have you been like, please share your location, and then I get halfway through the country, and I'm like, shit, I wasn't sharing my location. Sorry, Mom, I'm at a gas station now, though. You know? <laughs> there are times where maybe he didn't have enough money or didn't the payphone was down or something, and he said, well, I guess I'm not contacting my aunt right now. And then he just kept going or something. You know? I guess I could see that. But there I- are situations where maybe that's just what she wanted to think. You know, just the denial of... Well, something must have gone wrong. I'm just going to get back to Massachusetts. He's going to be there, and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, that little shit, you know? Yeah. However, they continued to stop at every truck stop along the way, still asking people if they'd seen this guy or seen his motorcycle passing through, and nobody did. But they didn't stop. They didn't go backward between the place where he had broken down and Rock Springs. Maybe that day where they were in Rock Springs, maybe went back to that truck stop where he was and asked them if they'd seen him or which direction he'd gone or if they mm-hmm. saw him leave at all, what was yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they did after they got to Rock Springs. They continued on after that whole day of waiting and then said, well, hopefully he's at home. We don't know. Okay. And they didn't even know what the next step here was, you know? Yeah. When Jackie and Allison finally made it to their home in Massachusetts, they didn't see any signs of Dave there either. And that's when the panic began. They started calling around to his friends in the area, and none of them had seen him, heard from him. He hadn't called to tell them he would be there soon or anything. So at this point, the family contacted the Massachusetts law enforcement and attempted to file a missing persons report, and they proceeded to tell them that he was an adult, and he was allowed to be unaccounted for if he wanted to. And so they kind of tried to explain the situation of, we have all of his stuff in this car. He wouldn't just go on his own direction and disappear. Why would he even... If you didn't want to move from California, just say that. You're 19. You're allowed to stay there if you want, you know? Yeah. So they tried to explain that, and they were like, we don't know what to tell you. And even if we were to file a missing persons report, it would be the responsibility of the Wyoming, where he disappeared, police, to take care of that. So they directed them to the Wyoming police. And when they called Wyoming, they said, 
oh, well, he has California plates, right, on his motorcycle? And they said yes. And they said, okay, well, you need to call California. They're the ones that would file the missing persons report. And so they called California, and they said, well, actually, since he now lives in Massachusetts, you need to file it. So you see where this is going. They just kept passing it Nobody all wanted around. to deal with them. It was paperwork, and they were like, he'll be fine. He's probably okay. He just wanted to disappear. I just don't know how these people live with themselves. <laughs> because, yeah, they see how many a week or how many a year, mm-hmm. and they do come back. But you know what? The ones that don't come back, and you didn't bother to try looking for them, mm-hmm. how do you live with yourself? And even if it was oh, he left in the middle of the night and didn't come home. Okay, maybe he did want to disappear. But if you didn't even listen to the circumstances of this guy disappearing right now, clearly they didn't or they just didn't care because this doesn't make sense. Why would he do that? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So they just kept passing it off and the family, they wouldn't even allow them. They never officially got to file a missing persons report because nobody would take it. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah hot potato with somebody's life. This poor mom. I can't imagine the helplessness you would feel. What? Where do you even start looking if you have to go do it yourself in that situation? I don't know. I guess you have to drive all the way back to Wyoming. Wyoming. Travel the path where he was last at. But, I mean, after all this time, he's long gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, but he obviously never made it to Rock Spring. Mm-hmm. He clearly got lost between where his bike broke down and where he was supposed to stop for the night. Exactly. So somewhere in that 30 miles or Something hour, it, maybe an hour, I think it was a distance between those two places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somewhere in there is where something happened to him. Mm-hmm. So I guess you just drive up and down that road and look for any sign of bike parts where somebody might have hit him with their car mm-hmm. or, you know, an abandoned bike in the bushes where somebody might have snatched him and hidden it. And Wyoming is such an open plain. Yeah. Where if he had made one wrong turn, got off the highway at the wrong place, and got lost, I mean, he didn't have GPS, you know? It's, yeah. You get lost, you're kind of fucked unless you find somebody to ask around and figure out where you're going. So, nine days later, so since the last time he spoke to his aunt on the phone, August 14th, Wyoming police received a call from a couple who had found a maroon Yamaha motorcycle with California plates while camping. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what I just said a minute ago. Yep. This alarmed them, not because it's just a random motorcycle without anybody, but it was in an isolated area of a camping site, and it had a backpack leaning up against it, so it seemed like somebody just walked away for a minute. However, that bike had been there since the couple got there a couple days earlier and hadn't moved. Yeah. And when they went up to it upon further inspection, the keys were also still in the ignition, and the tank had a full tank of gas. There was nothing wrong with it. And then they called the police. They got there and started up the motorcycle, gave it a go, and it ran fine. Nothing was wrong with it at this point. It sounds like he pulled off the road to pee or something. Possibly. Or somebody else left that there. Well, here's all this stuff. Let's just hope nobody finds it or nobody looks at this and thinks it's weird looking. Or thinks that he parked here and walked into the woods and got lost or whatever. Mm -hmm. Especially with California plates. They know he's not a local. He could very well get lost in the big forest land or wherever he was, you know? Mm -hmm. This place where they found the bike was about 30 miles south of Rock Springs. So it does kind of sound like maybe he got off course somewhere along the way, took a wrong turn and ended up there. That's possible. Oh, so he probably stopped to look at his map. Probably. That might very well be. And then, you know, you can't look at a map while you're on a motorcycle. That's very difficult. <laughs> I don't recommend doing that. Yeah. So that's a good theory. I hadn't even thought about that. 
this couple reported that they hadn't seen anybody else in this area the entire couple days that they'd been there, except when they first drove in past this motorcycle, they saw another person on a motorcycle taking off in the opposite direction, leaving that site. They described this guy, apparently he had long hair, and he was riding a turquoise bike, and that's kind of all the information they had. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if that guy put the bike there, or if... We have no idea what that, if that even has to do with it. Or if they had nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. That's just... I mean, people riding motorcycles to go camp is not an unusual thing. No. Especially in a place like Wyoming, mm-hmm. where there's so much camping and so much wilderness. Well, plus, if he did put the bike there after doing something to David, how did he get his bike and that bike there? Right. It's not like he it was... It would take two people to get that bike there, and then... Yeah. I mean, if he was leaving the area with another guy on the back of his bike, that might be weird. But otherwise, I don't see the connection. Investigators did search the entire area, but with ATVs and all that, but they never found anything else that belonged to David. So, unfortunately, that's where the story ends. Most people seem to have... A theory that David must have been attacked and robbed by an opportunist who saw him confused out here in the middle of nowhere, maybe looking at a map, like you said, and then wanted to rob him. But he only had, at the time, $150 in cash, which is like 300 something dollars in today's money. But that's still not a huge amount of money to rob and kill somebody for, you know? Maybe not. I mean, I don't think any amount of money is enough to justify killing somebody for. Yeah, valid. But, you know, if your choice is take that $300 or don't take that $300, some people are going to say, yep, I'll take that $300. Yeah, but then they also left the bike. You could sell that bike for thousands, probably. Why would you... Or chop it for parts. Yeah, so I just don't see why they would not even take his backpack, you know, if there might be... Did it seem like stuff was missing from the backpack, or was it all pretty much in the same condition as if he had just dropped it off there and walked away? Yeah, everything was still in the backpack. Nothing seemed rummaged around, like even the saddlebags on his bike, everything was still in there. The only thing that was missing were his driver's license and the cash, but that was probably in his pocket, you know? Yeah. So wherever his body, or he is, is probably where that is, you know? That's wild. Yeah. I did want to bring one more thing up and then I will be done. His family has brought into consideration David as a young child had suffered some type of chronic issue. It's not really clear depending on which report you read, but it required many surgeries. It was either a chronic heart condition or it was a chronic kidney problem that he had to continuously have throughout his childhood multiple surgeries on his abdomen. Okay. And because of that, he was not allowed to do any kind of physical sport, anything like that, because he had a huge risk. If he got hit in the abdomen, it could be fatal to him. Okay. And so his family has talked about it and said, to me, it's totally possible that somebody saw him on the side of the road. He was confused. He's from California, clearly. They know he's not a local. They want to rob him. They just decided to rough him up a little bit, punch him in the chest. Now he's dead, and they don't know why the fuck he's dead. They're scared, and they have to do something with him. She thinks that's probably what did happen that to her brother. That sounds really feasible. I think to kill somebody, $300 is not a lot. But if you get $300, and you just have to punch a guy and scare him, and then you're out of there, that seems plausible to me. Yeah. So... Or even he could have driven to that spot by accident lost, Mm -hmm. although he would have had to get off the interstate to get there. So that's less likely Mm -hmm. that he was accidentally off the interstate because pretty much you know whether you're on the interstate or not. 
Yeah. It's like, oh, this this is a dirt road. It's probably not the interstate anymore. And I have to think, in a place like Atlanta, you might accidentally get on the wrong interstate and go the wrong way for a little bit. But in a place like Wyoming, there can't be that many intersecting roads in that general area. Yeah. It's not... Right. Not big roads. Not big roads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, you would know if you got off. Right. Well, and I would assume they're driving on, I'm assuming they're driving on interstate highways mm-hmm. and not on just a divided highway, you know? I don't know. I just, I really don't know what I think happened the most. I think that the fact that he does have a chronic condition that if even a simple blow to the chest could hurt you, yeah. I... Yeah. Think. I think that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And even if it was just an accident, maybe he went to go pee and tripped somewhere in the forest. You know what I mean? And fell on a rock that hit his chest and he just could never got back up. We mm-hmm. don't know. Well, that was a really kind of a frustrating story because it seems very clear of what could have happened. But mm-hmm. the fact that there's no evidence, no one came forward and said, I saw a guy getting roughed up on the side of the highway. Yeah. No one saw anything. No one saw him drive to that campground. And also, to put that into perspective, if the police had listened the second the mom reported that, hey, he's not here, can you please go drive these roads? Clearly, I can't do it. I'm in Massachusetts. Can you please go back? This is where he last was. Drive around and see if you see anything of his. How much sooner would that bike have been found? If he really did, I don't even know. Maybe hit his head, maybe hit his chest or something, and he's delirious somewhere in the woods or out in this camp area. Mm-hmm. If he just kept wandering, we may never find him now because if you had done it the first day, he could be a mile away. Now he's 200 miles away. We don't know what the fuck happened. Yeah. And it's just, I, yeah. that poor mom will never know what happened to her son. Wow, uh, what a frustrating story. They do have his DNA on file, though, so if they do ever find a John Doe in the area that they can connect to him, they have it in CODIS, so just a heads up. What was he wearing? They have that on the Charlie Project, though. If you search his name, you can find a full description, and I think they even had a picture of what he was wearing the day that they took off. So, check it out if you want to. I'm also going to take us out into the wilderness. Yay! Yes, but this is the California wilderness. Okay. Tamara Brooks was 16 years old, smart. Studious, kept her grades on the honor roll at Antelope Valley High School. She was a leader in her high school student government, and she was a track star. Her father, Sammy Brooks, called her Tammy. Sammy and Tammy, isn't that cute? Yeah. And says that resilience and toughness is in their genes. Tamara was dating a boy named Eric Brown. The night of Wednesday, July 31st, 2002, Tamara and Eric had gone to a local Lancaster, California teen hangout called Quartz Hill, which looked out over the city and where kids would go there to park. Mm -hmm. The two of them were sitting in the car, just being together, enjoying the night air at Quartz Hill until around midnight. As the day changed over to August 1st, the two of them were still in the car when suddenly they were accosted by a man who was holding two guns. The man tied Eric up, blindfolded him, pulled him out of the car, and tied Eric to a post. The man told Eric that he was going to have to kill him, even though he didn't want to. Hmm. Then Eric heard the man talking to Tamara. Stay down. Keep your head down. Don't look at me. The man tied Tamara up in the back seat and then drove off in Eric's car, a Ford Bronco. Okay, so Eric's still alive then? Eric's still alive. He's still tied to the pole. Okay. Jacqueline Maris whom some call Jackie, was 17 years old back in 2002. So she's a year older than Tamara. Mm -hmm. She worked hard in school. She had loving parents, Nadine Dyer and Herb Maris, 
and two siblings, both younger. She was active, energetic. She surfed. She was a Highland High School cheerleader. She had also grown up in Lancaster, California, and she considered herself pretty typical among her friends. She dated a boy named Frank Malero. The same night as Tamara and Eric, the two of them, Frank and Jackie, also decided to visit Quartz Hill. Jackie had a 1 a.m. curfew, and although it was now after midnight, the two of them weren't quite ready to leave. The summer air was nice, the view was nice, the company was nice, so they sat in Frank's pickup truck enjoying their time together in the first hour of August 1st, 2002. They had heard nothing of the goings-on down at the Bronco, down the lane. Mm -hmm. But suddenly, the quiet of their night was shattered, and Frank felt a gun pressed up against his head. A man was demanding money. He commanded the teenagers to look down, not look at him. He asked Frank if he thought the man would kill him. Frank's thought was, yeah, you'll kill me. You've got a gun. You'll kill me. Mm -hmm. The stranger duct taped Frank into the driver's seat of the car. He blindfolded Jackie and taped her hands and started to bind her feet with the duct tape, but he didn't have enough left on the roll and it ran out. So he made her get out of the car and walk. She was having a little bit of trouble walking because he had started taping her feet together, but she made it down the way to a Ford Bronco. He forced the blindfolded Jackie into the back seat of the Bronco and drove off. Hmm. Through a very small gap under the blindfold, Jackie could see a pair of legs. Her blood ran cold. She was certain she was sharing the back seat with a dead body. She was also certain that she would be next. After the man had driven away with Jacqueline, Frank managed to free himself and call for help. He got out of the truck, walking in the direction that he thought the kidnapper had taken Jackie, and found Eric still taped to the post. Police arrived and started planning how they could search for these two missing young women. And they issued the very first use of the Amber Alert system in California for the abduction of these two minors. Wow. It was the very first time. And this was 2002? Yeah, and wow. they had instituted it in, I think, 1996. But they hadn't used it yet for some reason. And by this point, there were only 12 states using Amber Alert systems at that time. So it wasn't even a nationally accepted thing yet. That's so crazy. This so was recent. the very first use. Wow. While the search was being set up, the man kept driving. He drove for more than 30 minutes before he finally stopped. Once they had stopped, Jacqueline saw that the legs were not of a dead body. They were the legs of Tamara Brooks, who was very much alive. The two girls did not know one another, but they instantly became allies. The man would stop at times to eat and at other times to sleep. It was during these kinds of stops that he sexually assaulted each of them. Sometimes he would put both in the back seat together. Other times he separated them by having one in the front. When they were separated, they showed their unity with each other by reaching forward to put a hand on the other one so that they wouldn't feel alone. <laughs> the driver, the man, oddly cycled between cruel, predatory behaviors such as the sexual assaults, and then he would act caring and concerned about them. And then just as quickly, he would go back to threatening to kill them if they didn't comply with his demands. But no matter his momentary demeanor, Jacqueline and Tamara knew they were in a very dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. How could he let them go now that they could identify him? What they didn't know was that this man had a long history of arrest going back to 1985. He had multiple convictions for burglaries. He had been released from prison a year earlier in 2001, and then he'd allegedly raped a 19-year-old relative a few months later in October 2021. So at this point, this man, 37-year-old Roy Dean Ratliff, had nothing left to lose. Because if he got caught again, he was going back for life. So without even knowing all of that, the two girls instantly bonded in the sisterhood for survival, independently started looking for ways to escape. 
During one time of Ratliff stopping the Bronco, he absentmindedly failed to close Jacqueline's door completely, leaving it open a crack. Jackie noticed it and knew that she would be able to escape, but she also knew that it would mean that Ratliff would kill Tamara. So she didn't run. She wasn't going to leave Tamara behind. <laughs> I know. I love girls. I know. They can be so bitchy sometimes, and they can be so beautiful sometimes. When it's, it counts, you know? Yeah. The Bronco started moving again, and Jackie grabbed Tamara's hand. They couldn't speak to each other because he would mm-hmm. know that they were plotting against him, but she methodically spelled out letters in Tamara's palm. N-E-E-D-A-P-L-A-N. Tamara got it. Need a plan. Mm-hmm. She spelled back K-N-I-F-E. Eric Brown, the owner of the Bronco, Tamara's boyfriend, kept a Bowie knife in the car and Tamara knew it. Ooh. Jacqueline, most bound to Tamara, was lying across the back seat. Her hands were tied at this point and she'd already decided there was no way I was going to go down without a fight. That's a quote from her. Mm-hmm. There was no way I was going to go down without a fight because that would have been stupid of me. How can you not fight for your life? The Bronco kept moving, carrying the captor and the two young women further and further into the Mojave Desert. As morning began to break, they pulled onto a dirt road in a canyon in the middle of nowhere. Jacqueline felt that it was now or never, as she heard Ratliff firing his guns off. He loaded both of them and fired them both. She feared that this was where he was planning to kill them. She later said that he had been driving around on these back roads, very, very deep and far out of civilization, basically, Mm -hmm. and he knew the roads really well. So she felt like he had brought them to this place because this is where he wanted to kill them. It would be easy to dump bodies here and then escape. Ratliff, who had been intoxicated when he kidnapped both of the girls, had continued drinking this entire long night, and he got back into the Bronco. He saw the knife, he picked it up, He looked it over, felt the edge of the blade, but he had been drinking so long and he had been driving for so far that now he fell asleep. And this was the moment, Jacqueline and Tamara decided. Both of them worked to free themselves from the rope and the duct tape. Jackie had to use saliva to free the adhesive. She said licking at the duct tape long enough will destroy the adhesive and then it won't stick to you anymore. Mm -hmm. So as they worked to get loose, they saw that Ratliff had put the knife down on the console, thinking it was safe because the two of them were tied up. So there was the knife, and there, in the passenger seat, was the bottle of whiskey that he had been drinking on all night long. Mm -hmm. The plan was now set. Jacqueline was going to get the knife and stab him. Tamara was going to follow up with a blow from the whiskey bottle. Oh, smart. Okay. They each silently reached to the front to get the weapons in hand, not sure if they could go through with potentially killing him, Mm -hmm. regardless of what he had put them through. But when it seemed like he might be waking up because his eyes fluttered, they nodded at each other, one, two, three, and then sprang into action. Jackie plunged the bowie knife into Ratliff's neck, and then Tamara smashed the bottle into the side of his face, breaking his thick glasses. As he writhed in pain and confusion, they pushed him out of the car and locked themselves inside of it. Oh, so they're just going to bite have fun in the desert. I don't think that they have the keys, though. But Uh. outside the car, he rolled around, bleeding from his neck and his head. But eventually, he was able to stand up. And when he did, he was mad. He pulled his gun and threatened the two girls. Oh, I forgot the gun. He told them that they had three seconds to open the door or he was going to shoot them both through the window. They knew that was true. So they complied, believing that he had always intended to kill them, and he certainly wasn't going to hesitate to follow through now. Mm -hmm. The girls were now terrified, pleading with him to let them go. 
They talked to him about things in his life that were worth living for. Jacqueline asked him what could the two of them ever have done to him to make him want to put them through all of this. Mm-hmm. And she asked him why didn't he understand that they had people at home who loved them, people who were scared and waiting for them to come home. But he got back in the car and he just drove. Police had been searching since shortly after the abductions and had brought out all their resources. They had five helicopters and two small airplanes circling the skies over the areas most believed to be where Ratliff might have taken them. Mm -hmm. All of the area police departments were on the lookout for the Bronco. The Amber Alert, which had been posted in the wee hours of the morning, was also alerting the public that the girls had been kidnapped, as well as telling the vehicle and tag number that they were believed to be in. So that was putting lots of eyes on the road. Not just the police are aware, but hey, civilians can now look out for this. Exactly. Exactly. Civilians looking for that truck. Mm -hmm. Puts a lot more eyes on them than just the cops. Thank you. I could not come up with that word. (laughs) (laughs) So the information had also been sent out to police scanners. A call came in with a sighting at a gas station. Some state highway workers saw the car in several different locations. A sheriff's helicopter spotted it in Kern County. By 11.45 a.m. on August 1st, almost 11 hours after the ordeal began, the Bronco was spotted and then followed by a Kern County Animal Control Officer, Bonnie Hernandez, who also called it in. Two sheriff's deputies responded and closed in on Ratliff in the vehicle, cutting off his only possible route. So basically, they've -hmm. they've trapped him. Mm -hmm. So with no road to drive on, he instead drove down an embankment into a dry riverbed and got the Bronco stuck on top of a rock with no wheels at all on the ground. Just four wheels spinning in the air. I have no idea how he even managed to do that. I did that with the sign at Skyline. So I know exactly. (laughs) Do they know this? Should we cut that out? (laughs) No, the Skyline employee had to be the one to call the tow truck. So it's all right. Everybody's aware. (laughs) Okay. So we're not... It wasn't a big secret. They know. They saw my face. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, so he's stranded on the rock. Deputies went to surround the Bronco, and Ratliff jumped out of the vehicle and tried to run. As deputies got closer to grabbing him, he brandished his gun. Jacqueline later said that Ratliff actually fired at the deputies, although that was not officially confirmed. But regardless, he brandished the gun at the deputies, and they opened fire and shot him. He was hit twice in the head, and he died on the scene. Mm, Ambulances arrived to render first aid to Tamara and Jacqueline before they were transported to the hospital for their examinations and further treatment. Mm -hmm. They sobbed with relief at having survived because it was clear this man never intended to let them go. Jacqueline summed it up, quote, I was alive. I had my life back, and the bad guy was dead. I know how close I was to death. Word that the girls were alive was sent back to the girls' hometown where the families were gathered at the sheriff's command center and they were waiting to hear something good. Mm -hmm. They didn't know if they would hear something good, but that was what everybody was hoping for. The families hugged and cried with happiness at the news. Both of their fathers expressed they knew they had raised fighters who would use everything they had to escape and survive. But the young women had been driven 130 miles away from where they were taken, far outside of the search area. Had the Amber Alert not been activated, would this have been on all the police scanners more than 100 miles away? Probably not. Would anyone have seen them and followed them into the canyon? Mm. These girls were definitely fighters. They were extremely brave. They were extremely brave. They both acted in each other's interests, even though they had never met before. They were selfless towards saving each other and not just themselves. After being checked over in the hospital, both were released later the same day. There was immediately an avalanche of media attention on this case. The heroism of the two young women who loyally protected each other 
and survived when their captor was killed. But then it was revealed that both of them had, in fact, been raped by Ratliff. Suddenly, the media redacted their names, obscured their faces, stopped hailing their heroism. And society said that was correct because rape victims should not be identified. And of course, rape is such a violation of personhood, violation of one's bodily autonomy, that it stands to reason that maybe someone shouldn't have to be publicly identified by that forever. Mm -hmm. But this also raised a lot of debate because why should a rape survivor feel ashamed of something that someone did to them and not let people know their story? There are people who would want to maintain their privacy whether there was a rape or not. You know, you don't feel ashamed if you're robbed. Mm -hmm. You don't feel ashamed if someone throws a rock and hits you with it. Right. Why should they have to hide their faces because someone did something to them? Well, it's the responsibility of the media and the journalists reporting it. It's that simple. If you're going to do a story, hey, would you like your name in this? If they're comfortable with that, then obviously that's fine. Use their name. But don't out people, too, if you can't get a hold of them or whatever. Right. So it doesn't have to be a black or white situation. (laughs) It's it's very similar to the Penhold Alberta case that you did in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Because those people didn't want their names out there. They didn't want to have their names in the media. But if they had been raped, Mm -hmm. there wouldn't have even been any question. Nobody would have used their names. Yeah. There was just a lot of conversation going on about this, about saying, if we say we should never discuss rape in the news, if we say we should never identify a survivor, we're putting a stigma on the survivor. Mm -hmm. We're saying this is taboo. This was the attitude that kept the epidemic of rapey priests. Mm -hmm. You know, this Mm -hmm. is why all those rapey priests got away with it for so long. Talking about violence against a person should not be taboo. And that person has no reason to feel ashamed. And that we should normalize treating survivors in whatever way they specifically want to be treated. Mm -hmm. And to that end, Jacqueline actually raised her voice and said, I want to be identified. She wanted people to know what had happened to her. She wanted people to recognize that the shame of rape is not held by the survivor, but by the perpetrator. The survivor of any violence deserves the same respect, the same compassion, the same admiration for making it, for getting through it. And she knew this at only 17. How many people who have been through decades more years on this planet still don't understand that a rape survivor has nothing to feel ashamed of? Mm -hmm. They should be able to stand on a stage and be joyful just for having survived without bearing the scarlet letter that our society still wants to paint them with. And that's what Jacqueline was saying when she came forward and said, I want to be identified. I want people to see me standing tall, Mm -hmm. standing proud, keeping my head up, walking with dignity. I want people to know I have nothing to be ashamed of. And so that's what this whole conversation was. Mm -hmm. She immediately started making media appearances. She was frank. She spoke without embarrassment. She and Tamara both appeared together on the Today Show within days of the crime that had happened to them. Mm -hmm. They rightfully spoke with dignity and without shame. They wanted to share their full story and in addition to send the message to people, never give up on anything. If you ever give up, you've lost. Whatever obstacles you have, you have to fight your way through it. They felt that what they had experienced could help other young women facing similar traumas. But then again, there was backlash to this. And in fact, an internet hoax was started within two weeks of the abductions. There was a New Times LA online article published that claimed that NBC was producing a reality TV show hosted by Jacqueline and Tamara. The claim was that female contestants would be dropped off from a helicopter within a radius of multiple repeat sex offenders, 
who would then try to intercept the women as they attempted to make their way to a safe house. And of course, this was total fabrication. It was intended as some sort of a satirical critique. They're trying to go over the top with it. I don't agree with posting that article, Mm -hmm. but I get what they're trying to say. They were trying to say that NBC had really exploited the girls, Mm -hmm. that they had acted unethically in some ways. And so that's what the article was sort of poking fun at. But really what it did was injure the girls. It was total fabrication. The The critique was because so many people thought that the media was focusing way too much attention on these two teenagers because it was salacious also. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very beautiful young women that were on all these shows talking about what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. And it was bordering on exploitative. Well, and they were children too. Yes, like, so. yes. The publication said that the author of this article had been fired, although there was also some doubt as to whether this author was even a real person. It might have just been a a nom de plume. But in the end, the survival of these two young women was what mattered most. And they had bonded quickly because they knew they needed one another to get through this ordeal. A therapist who worked with both of them afterwards said, There's something about being with someone else in a crisis that brings out a moral courage we didn't know we had. Most people have an instinct to protect others. They just sometimes forget that. Jacqueline had said to Katie Kirk on that Today Show episode, When I saw Tamara in the car, I was glad I was there. She saw her and immediately wanted to be there to help her through it. She wanted to protect this other young woman that she didn't even know. After the media frenzy had calmed down, Jacqueline and Tamara got in the car and headed for the beach, just the two of them. And four years after their ordeal, Jackie was running her own interior design business. Tamara was a political science major at UCLA. The two of them took part in an Orange County unveiling of a new 39-cent postage stamp commemorating the uh, U.S. postage stamp. It's Mm -hmm. not just a California thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Commemorating the Amber Alert system, which had been used for the very first time during their abduction Mm. and which has saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children over the years. Yeah. Jacqueline and Tamara survived because they were there together, because they loved each other. Even without knowing each other, they just looked at each other with a protective eye and decided that they were there to help the other one get out. I'm so proud of them. And it is, I never thought about your points before that they were making about once rape comes into the picture, you never hear it unless the victim themselves are saying, this happened to me, I'm not ashamed. And I never even connected that dot before, how media will just, oh, a 16-year-old girl. But if the 16-year-old girl got kidnapped and that hadn't happened, they'd be like, this amazing 16-year-old. Exactly. I'd never realized it, but you're totally right. And yes, the wounds that are given to someone when they are raped are awful. These deep emotional wounds that take a lot of healing. They take a lot of strength to get through. Mm-hmm. But by silencing these victims, by making them invisible... We're saying you have something to be ashamed of. You should be hiding. And I totally understand the point that they're making. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of debate that could be had about it. But it's just, I just think that we shouldn't immediately... Assume that that means they're embarrassed about what happened. Yeah. Or... Yeah. And without people like Jacqueline and Tamara, these other victims are going to keep being embarrassed. So good for those girls. Yeah. That's what they wanted. They wanted to say... Look, if this happens to you, raise your voice. Mm-hmm. Don't don't feel like you have to be silent. 
So that's it for episode 54. Please share us with someone that you think would enjoy true crime. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best ways to support us. Also, you could support us for free by going and doing a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen. Mm -hmm. And if you want to shoot us an email, we haven't said in a couple weeks, so I'll just put that out there. True Crime BNB Pod. A true Crime BNB Pod at gmail.com. That's why we got to keep bringing it up or else I'll forget. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, you can find us on all socials except for TikTok. Mm-hmm. We're not ticking and we're not talking. Well, we talk a lot, but we certainly don't tick. <laughs> we don't tick, but we do meow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. We always appreciate you being here, and we will see you next week for our one year. Podversary and episode 55. And episode 55. See you next week. Bye. Bye. That's true. I'm only 27 and a 19 year old. I'm like, I could snap you like a twig. <laughs> Let's not snap people like a twig. Just my brother. He's almost 19. I can snap him. Well, he's a thin guy, though. He is tiny. Sorry, Dallas. <laughs> he could be anywhere in Wyoming at this point. We don't have no idea. Yeah. We don't have no idea. We don't have no idea. <laughs> Interstate highways. Mm-hmm. Where are you? What are you doing, you little tyrant? <laughs> she says, I will destroy your podcast. <laughs> well, okay, let's nip this in the bud. bud? Yes. Is a bud or a bud? You can nip her in the butt, too, if you, <laughs> if if you think it'll help. It to me, I could probably do it. <laughs> All right. All right, Bear, please don't purr. Behave. Behave. I'll just keep pinching her so she'll stop purring. <laughs> I'll hold you, but you won't be happy about it. Puss abuser. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they called me back in high school, you know what I'm saying? What are you doing out there? <laughs> it sounds like she's like playing with nuts and bolts on the floor or something. What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Little monster? Such as the sexual assault. I know, it is upsetting, but you'd be quiet about it. What the hell are you doing? Get out of here. Is she in the bathroom? No, she was back there playing with the door stopper. <laughs> Never seen her do that before. Oh my god. At least they're not those springy ones. Mm-hmm. She used to do that in the last place I lived. And she would go up and start batting at it, and it would go boing, and boing, and boing. I, I have to admit, I used to do that, too, when I was not her age, because that would be 16 years old. But wow. Bonds. Bonds? Bounds? Binds? Binds? Oh. The rope and the duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> that works. <laughs>